0: We're going to be learning in Chidusha bin Uchaim HaLevi the first piece in Hilchus Tumas Mace. This is Parag Zain HaLacha Dalid. And interestingly, this section in Chidusha ben Uchaim Halevi on these halachas of the Rambam, which deal with coming into contact with a dead body, and the impurity, the Tumah that comes from that, are the longest section throughout the Sefer. So as a bit of an introduction to why this section is so lengthy and why Rab Chaim has so many insights on it, even though it's one of the more obscure and less studied areas of halacha. Now, obviously, Rab Chaim Is an expert in all areas of halacha, so there's nothing that he hadn't studied and thought about in depth, but still, there is a historical explanation for why this section in particular, Rab Chaim had even more insights about, when in general, other commentators study this section less than other sections of halacha. So Rab Chaim's grandson, Rab Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, in his book, Halachic Man, which has a lot of stories and traditions about his father, Rab Moshe Soloveitchik, and his grandfather, Rab Chaim Soloveitchik, and other brisker figures. So he gives us the context, he records the tradition, for why Rab Chaim had so many ideas about Hilchus Thomas Mays, coming into contact with the dead body. On page 36, he tells an interesting story. He's trying to illustrate the point that Halachic men, the great Torah giants, which for him in many ways are his ancestors, were afraid of death. They considered death to be the ultimate enemy for a Torah life because they're no longer able to live a life of Halacha. So he records that the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, meaning the base HaLevi, his son Rabbi Chaim, his grandson Rabbi Rab Moshe Soloveitchik and Rab Elia Prezhiner Feinstein, who was Rab Moshe Soloveitchik's father in law, so Rab Yosef Dov's other grandfather, they never visited cemeteries and never prostrated themselves upon the graves of their ancestors. So, unlike the common practice to go pray at cemeteries, these Torah giants totally avoided visiting cemeteries. And according to Rab Soloveitchik, the reason for that is the memory of death would have distracted them from their intensive efforts to study the Torah. So basically he attributes one of the characteristics of great men of Halacha, of Torah giants, is that they are afraid of death. And then he tells the following story, my uncle, Reb Meir Berlin Bar-Ilan, so he was one of the younger children of the Nitziv from his second marriage, and he was later the head of the Mizrahi movement, so he was technically Reb Chaim's uncle, because Reb Chaim had married a granddaughter of the Nitziv from his first marriage. So even though Reb Chaim was much older than Mayor Bar-Ilan, but Mayor Bar-Ilan was technically his uncle. So he had a number of interactions with Reb Chaim, and he related the following incident to Rav Soloveitchik. Once he and Rav Chaim of Brisk happened to be staying in the same hotel in Libo on the shore of the Baltic. One fine, clear morning, he arose at sunrise and went out on the balcony there to find Rav Chaim sitting his head between his hands, his glance fixed upon the rays of the rising sun, entirely absorbed in the aesthetic experience of such a glorious cosmic spectacle, and at the same time, entirely bent beneath the oppressive weight of a soul-shattering melancholy and a black despair. Reb Berlin took hold of Reb Chaim's shoulder and shook it. Why are you so troubled and disturbed, my master and teacher? Is something in particular responsible for your distress?" Yes, replied Rab Chaim. I am reflecting upon the end of every man, death. So basically the tradition records that Rab Chaim had a terrible fear of death. And the way Rav Soloveitchik puts this is the beauty and splendor of the world on the one hand and the fate of man who can enjoy this mysterious magnificence for only a brief fleeting moment on the other hand touched the cords of his sensitive heart. In other words, the fact that he saw this beautiful world and became aware that he was going to die and he was not going to enjoy it. after his death, so that caused him tremendous grief and despair and depression because he wanted to go on being active in the world forever. Death was going to put an end to that. So this is a very interesting tradition that Rav Soloveitchik records, and of course, as usual, he describes it beautifully, and he shows how it fits in with his overall perspective of Judaism. So he does a magnificent job painting a picture of how this fear of death is one of the strong and important values of the great men of Halacha, the Torah giants, which of course includes many of his own immediate ancestors. And he ties this in with Rab Chaim's well-known emphasis on pikuach nefesh. Rab Chaim was incredibly strict on anything that involved saving a life, and he had a number of important halachic positions in that regard. Now, later on page 73, Rav Soloveitchik picks up this discussion again, and now he ties it in directly to Rab Chaim's Torah insights on the subject of death. My father, so this is Rab Moshe Soloveitchik, related to me that when the fear of death would seize hold of Rab Chaim, he would throw himself with his entire heart and mind into the study of the laws of tents and corpse defilement. And these laws, which revolved about such difficult and complex problems as defilement of a grave, defilement of a tent, blocked up defilement, Interposition before defilement, a vessel with a tight fitting cover upon it, in a tent in which a corpse lies, etc., etc. So those are all the subjects basically that the Rambam covers in this area of Halacha. So when Rab Chaim would study all of that, it would calm the turbulence of his soul and would imbue it with a spirit of joy and gladness. So Rav Salavechik comments on this. When Halachic man fears death, His sole weapon wherewith to fight this terrible dread is the eternal law of the halacha. The act of objectification triumphs over the subjective terror of death. So basically, the Torah giant, this halachic figure that has a depression, a sadness over death, when they feel themselves overcome by the emotion that remembering and thinking about death is bringing on them, so they objectify it, they intellectualize it by studying the halacha's surroundings surrounding that topic, and that's their way of coping and dealing with the depression and the sadness that they're feeling. So that seems to be the explanation for Rab Chaim's heavy focus on this generally neglected area of halacha and why there's more insights on this topic than any other in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi. Now, there's a related tradition, also quoted by Rab Salovechik. this appears in the book The Rav by Aaron Rakefet, volume 2, page 200, that Rab Chaim felt the three areas of halacha which were his greatest expertise were Tumas Mace the laws of coming in contact with a dead body Ohalos the laws of being in the same room as a dead body and Shtaros the laws of documents so those were the areas that he had mastered most fully and had his best insights in so two out of three of his major expertise Tumas Mace and Ohalos are dealt with in this section of the Rambam so again that reinforces why it's so long and the third section of Shtaros is also going to have a bunch of pieces at the end of the Sefer. So these are some historical tidbits and some things to keep in mind in terms of Rav Chaim's personality as we go through this section. So in this piece, Rav Chaim's going to analyze and explain what the meaning of the halachic concept of tumas kever, that there's impurity of a grave. So anyone that comes in contact with a grave, in addition to the regular impurity of coming in contact with a dead body, there's an additional halachic concept that coming into contact of a grave. Rave with a dead body also creates impurity. So, Rabbeinu is going to explain what that concept is, particularly how it relates to another concept called Tuma Ritzutsa. There are a number of ways that Tuma gets imparted. ...from the Tame object to the person that touches it. One is called Maga, so if a person touches forms of Tuma, they become Tame. And the other is called Ohel, which is a special form of tuma that gets imparted if someone is in the same room or under the same roof as a dead body. So ohel only applies to dead bodies. Now, with regards to ohel, there's the ordinary type of ohel, which is that a person is in the same room and even though they're not on top of the dead body, but since they're in the room with the dead body, they become tame. But then there's a variation of this, which is called ritsutsa, which means a confined tuma. So let's say someone is hovering above a dead body, but they're not under the same roof as the dead body. So they're still tame, because a dead body's Tumah goes directly above and below it. It just shoots up straight above and below. So anyone that hovers above it is also going to become Tame because of this halacha of Tumah Ritzutza that the Tumah is shooting up and down. Now the difference between Ohel and Tumah in halacha is whether there's a measurement of a Tefach. In order for something to be considered a room in which case the dead body would be considered to be in a room so it's covered by by a roof, there needs to be a minimum shear, a measurement of a tefach of space, as opposed to Tumar which means that the body is confined in something but there isn't space of a tefach so let's say in a grave, if the body is totally covered over, there would not be a tefach, so that's not considered a roof, so that would be considered Tumar so there's a big debate between the Rambam and the Raivid, how Tumar relates with Tumas Kever, so that's going to be the purpose of rab Chaim's piece to explain the concept of Tumas Kever, the impurity of the grave, and how it interacts with the various forms of getting Tame either touching Maga or being in the room Ohel, which includes a discussion of Ohel versus Retzutzer. The Rambam writes, A grave does not impart Tuma. All around it, so that would mean the whole thing is considered an ohel. The tumah permeates throughout the entire building to all the sides, unless there's the space of a tefach, a squared tefach with the height of a tefach, at which point it becomes an ohel. Even if this person builds a mausoleum of a building that goes all the way to the sky, so it's a massive building on top of this grave, the entire thing is considered tomas kever. So according to the Rambam, to have tumas ohel in a grave requires a space of a tefach. But if there is no tefach, so et tumaretzutza, if it's a confined Tumah, the low hayasham Cholal Tefach, there was no space of a Tefach, Tumah Bokas, Ve'ola Bokas vi'oredes. then the Tumah shoots up and down, but it does not permeate throughout the entire structure. Zeklal Godol tumas Meis, this is the rule when it comes to Tumas Meis, the impurity of a dead body. Shekol HaMetami Min Im anything which is in the Tumas Ohel category, if it's confined, so that, then the Tumah goes up and down, but it does not go to all the sides of the structure. But once there's a space of a tefach, so then it's transformed from Tumah to the regular Halacha of Kever sasum, the regular impurity of a grave, and all around it, the entire area is mitame. So the Rambam articulates very clearly in this principle that there are two forms of Tumah when it comes to a grave. One is if there is the space of a Tefach inside, in which case it becomes an Ohel and the Tumah goes all over. The other is where there is no Tefach, it's confined, which is called Tumah Ritzutza, so the Tumah just shoots up and down, but it does not go to the sides, it does not permeate throughout the grave. So that is the Rambam's framework. Now the Raivet disagrees and he says, <speaking in Hebrew> The Rambam only listed two different categories within this Halakha. The Ravid disagrees. First of all, and he says that there are three different categories. So according to the Ravid, there's going to be a case where there's an exact tefach, another case where there's more than a tefach, and a third case where there's less than a tefach. So the Rambam only differentiated between a tefach and more or less, whereas the Ravid is going to have three different cases. And the Ravid rules as follows: Sheim Yesh Atuma Tefach If there's an exact tefach, Alfal Pisha even though the body itself cuts into that tefach space. So without the body, there's an exact tefach, but the body obviously takes up some of that space. Still, that's considered an exact tefach. So the halacha is that in that case, it's metame in every which way. So it's considered an ohel. So the Tumma permeates the entire thing. If someone touches any part of that grave, they become tame, as well as it's considered ritsutsa. So it shoots up and down. So if someone is on top of that grave, they also become tame. So this is the strictest situation because not only do we say that it's an ohel. So if someone touches any part of the grave, they're tame, but it's an ohel that doesn't even block the body. Ordinarily, a roof stops the Tuma from shooting up so if someone is on top of a room with a dead body in it they would not become Tame unless they touched the room but if they were hovering above they would not be Tame according to the Rivid, this grave which has an exact space of a Tefach in it has both stringencies it's both in Ohel as well as Tuma Ritzutza so if someone hovers over the body they become Tame and if someone touches any part of the grave they're also Tame and that is the standard case of a kever sasum according to the Ravid, so the definition of the halachic concept of a kever sasum, there's some sort of impurity that the Torah gave over a grave according to the Ravid that refers to a grave with an exact space of a tefach, whereas according to the Rambam that refers to a grave with either a tefach or more. So this is the key debate between the Rambam and the Ravid. Then the Ravid continues and he says that if there would be more than the space of a tefach, so ain'to metameh be'ohel, aval metameh kol svivav bemaga. So then it would not be tumma ritsutsa, it would not shoot up and down, because there's more than the space of a Tefach, but there would be Tuma permeating throughout the entire grave. So if someone touches any part of the grave, they would become tame. And as we just mentioned, this is obviously part of the Rambam's disagreement, he holds this is also a Kever, so there's both Ohel and Maga, whereas the rivet holds there's no Ohel. And then he continues, if there's less than the space of a tefach, so then it's not mitami b'maga, but it is metameh b'ohel. So in this one case, where there's less than a tefach space, both the Rambam and the Ravid agree that the only way to impart Tuma is Tuma ritsutsa, if someone hovers over it, because the Tuma shoots up and down, but there is no Tuma's ohel, meaning the Tuma doesn't permeate throughout, so if someone hovers over the grave, but not over the body, they're not tamei and if someone touches the rest of the grave, they're also not Tamey. So this is the basic framework of the debate between the Rambam and the Raivid. Both of them agree that there is a new halacha the Torah introduced called Tumas Kever, which combines two stringencies. Not only is it an ohel in terms of the whole Kever, the entire grave, becomes tame if someone touches it, but if someone hovers over it, they're also Tameh. So it also doesn't block the Tumah from going up. But the debate is where that stringency applies. According to the Ra'vid, it's only when there's an exact tefach. But if there's more than a tefach, then it does block the tumah and there's no Tumas Ohel. Whereas according to the Rambam, in both cases, there's still Ohel. Then the Ra'vid rules on a case where the Tumma itself is between two different structures, so which one it follows. And then at the end, he gives the sources from which he derives his approach, and he explains that it's based on a contradiction between the Gemara in Baba Basra versus the Gemara in Brachos. And he repeats this approach in a comment later on in chapter 25. Now, the contradiction between bababasra Basra and Brachos is that in Bababasra Basra, it talks about a house, that he smashed the doorway of the house, so there's now a hole instead of a door. And the halacha is that the dead body's impurity permeates throughout the entire house. If someone touches any of the walls, they become tamay. The problem is that the Gemarin Brachos Yud tells about Reb Lezer, Rabbi Tzadok, who used to skip over the caskets of dead bodies. So the Gemara asks, how could he do that? He was becoming Tamei. So the Gemara answers that the casket had a space of a tefach within it, so it blocked the Tumah from leaving the casket. So in Brachos, it seems to indicate that once there's a space inside of a tefach, the Tumah does not leave that structure and someone who's on top of it will not become Tamei. But the Gemara in Baba Basra, which is talking about a house, which obviously has a space of a tefach inside of it, a house is much bigger than a casket, and still the Gemara says that if someone touches it, they become Tamei because the Tumah permeates throughout the whole thing. So this seems like a contradiction. So Rab Chaim is going to survey four different approaches in the Rishonim to answer this question. The first is the answer of the right. Which he references in this comment And that is that the Ravid Differentiates between when there's an exact Tefach versus if there's more Than a tefach. So the cases In Baba Basra and Brachos are Talking about where there's more than a Tefach. So that's why there's no More Tomas Ohel. Again According to the Rivid, once there's More than a tefach, that will block the Tomas Ohel. So that's why Reb Lezer, Reb Sadok was able to skip Over the caskets because since there Was more than a tefach, it blocked the Tumah, and there was no problem being over them. But the Tumah does still permeate throughout the structure, so touching it would be a problem. So that's why touching the house in Baba Basra is going to be a problem. So in order to answer this contradiction between the Gemara and Brachos versus Baba Basra, the Ravid formulates his basic principle that there is no Tumas Ohel once the structure has more than a tefach of space, but there is a problem with touching it. Now, the Rambam is obviously going to need a totally different solution because the Rambam disagrees with the Raivit about this. He holds that even if the casket has more than a tefakh of space inside, there's still going to be Tuma from being on top of it because it's still considered a kever. So there's Tumas Ohel. So the Rambam is going to have to explain the reason Rab Lezer, Rab Tzadok, was able to skip over the caskets is a totally different thing. The Rambam later on in these halachas, Yud, Beis, Vav, writes that there's a special leniency for a wooden casket that if it's closed then the tumah doesn't leave it. So all these halakhas that we're talking about refer to graves but in a wooden casket that's closed so there is no Tumas Ohel. So that's how the Rambam interprets the leniency in the case of Rab Rab Tzadok because there it's talking about wooden caskets. Then there's a third solution from Tosos and Baba Basra. He says that we're not talking about sealed Caskets. So since they haven't been closed yet, they don't have the halacha of a kever. One of the features of a grave is that it's closed, but since these caskets haven't been closed, so they do not fall under the category of a kever, they're like a regular structure. And since they have more than a tefach, so there's no Tumas Ohel. Because it's clear when it comes to a regular structure, not a grave, that once there's the space of a tefach, so it blocks the Tumah from going up. So Tosvos differentiates between these caskets versus the regular halacha of Tumas Kever because these caskets weren't sealed. So that's the third approach. And Rav Chaim points out that the Rambam and the Ravid agree on this issue. Unlike Tosvos, they both understand that the caskets here are sealed. So in that regard, they agree, even though they have two different solutions to the overall problem. And then Rab Chaim quotes that the Ravid in chapter twelve has a fourth solution to this problem, which is based on the Gemara in Nazir Nundalid. The Gemara says that the tumah of Golel V'Dofek, the things which cover and seal up the kever, do not require the Nazir to restart his vow if he comes in contact with them. So basically, there's a leniency for the covering of the grave that it doesn't affect the Nazir's vow. So the proposes that the same leniency applies to a kohen, And now the proposes that in the case of Rab Lezerb, Rab Tzadok, those caskets were in the graveyard. So they were more like a grave than just a standalone casket with a dead body in it. So they had the same halacha of the golel and the dofik. They were treated under the same status. And just as there was a leniency for a Nazir, so too there was a leniency for a Kohain. So that also resolves the problem because the whole issue is that Reb Lezer, Reb Tzadok, was a Kohain. So how could he become Tameh? But since this is like the case of the vedofek so there's a leniency that it doesn't affect the Kohain. Now, if there hadn't been the space of a Tefach. So then there would be Tumor so that would have been a problem. So that's why the Gemara has to say that there was a Tefach, in which case there was no Tumor The only issue would have been that it was Tumas Kever, but since it's analogous to Golal Vidofek, so it's not a problem for a Kohain. So that's the Ravid's fourth solution. So the question again is, how could Rabblezer Barab Tzadok have skipped over these caskets? It should be no different than Tumas Kever, which being on top of the Kever creates Tumah, and Rabbi Lezer Rab was a kohen, so how could he be on top of the caskets? So the four solutions that we've seen are the Rivid and Parek Zion and Parek Chavhe answers that since the caskets had more than a tefach of space in them, so they're not considered Tumas Kever, and there is no more Tumas Ohel. So if Reb Lezer, Reb Tzadok was on top of them, he would not have become tamei. The whole stringency of Tumas Kever only applies to an exact tefach, but once it's larger than and a tefach, then it blocks the tumah from going up. So that's why these caskets are not the same as tumah's kever. The Rambam answers that the difference between the caskets and the kever is that the halacha of tumah's kever doesn't apply to wooden caskets. So since the caskets were wood, they blocked the tumah. Tosvos answers that the halacha of tumah's kever only applies to closed things, but since the caskets were open, so they blocked the tumah. And the Raivid's fourth answer, which he mentions in Perik is that since these caskets were more like a cemetery, so they were treated like the closing of the grave, which does not create Tumma for a Nazir or a Kohen. So that's why there was a leniency for Rebbe Rab Rebbe Tzadok, to jump over them and it was not the equivalent of Tomas Kever. So those are four solutions to differentiate between Tomas Kever versus these caskets. Now Rab Chaim at the end of the first paragraph asks that why does the rivet in Perek Yudbez indicate that the leniency for the caskets was because there's a special leniency that it doesn't apply to a Kohen in that case when he's using this very story in the Gemara in Perek Zion and Perek Hafez to prove his overall point that there is no tumas Kever when there's more than a Tefach space. So there seems to be a contradiction in the Ravid. He's giving two different answers to the same question, but the answer in Perak Yudbez seems to limit the application of this leniency. So it seems to undermine the approach he's developing in Perak Zion and Perak Chav based on this story that the whole concept of tumas Kever doesn't apply when there's more than a Tefach space inside the structure. So that's Rab Chaim's question. He's now going to go on a lengthy discussion to explain all of these concepts, and he'll only come back to resolve this contradiction in the Raivid at the very end of the piece. So now in the second paragraph, Rabchaim Chaim asks a totally different question on the Rivid's approach, and that is, how could the Ravid suggest That when there's more than a tefach space, there's no Tumas Ohel, but there is Tumas Maga. There is Tumma of touching. One of the points of the Raivid is that the case of Tumas Kever, if there's more than a tefach inside... So if the person is on top of that grave, they're not going to become Tamei through Ohel. But if they touch it, they will become Tamei. So Rab Chaim questions this because both of these halachas of touching and Ohel are derived from the same pasuk in the Gemara Nazir Nun Gimel. The pasuk says, Anyone who touches on the field. So the Gemara interprets, this is referring to Hamahil, it's referring to Ohel or the grave, so the Gemara says zekever sasum. So that is the typical halacha of a grave. So basically, this whole concept of the tumas kever, the impurity of the grave, is derived from a pasuk which refers to both the ohel and the maga. And the Ravid himself earlier in these halachas in Parak Bays explicitly explains how both Maga and Ohel are included in the Pasuk. He explains that Asher Yiga, anyone that touches refers to Tumas Maga. Alpne Hasade over the field, refers to Tumas Ohel. So basically it's very clear that in the Gemara's discussion of Kever Sasum, the Tumah of a grave, it's including both Tumah as well as Ohel. So how does the Raivi differentiate between these two types of Tumah when they apply in terms of their details if they're both derived from the same pasuk, so they should both be applicable in the same cases. So if the pasuk is not referring to a grave with more than a tefach space, then it shouldn't apply to ohel as well as to maga. So this is Rab Chaim's question on the rivet. How does he differentiate between these two types of toma? So in order to answer this question, Rab Chaim formulates his first major concept of this piece. And he wants to understand what is the relationship between Tomas kever and Tomah Ritsutsa. So he approaches this with a question. The Mishnah in the 7th chapter of Ohalos, which is the whole source for this halacha that a kever requires a minimum of a tefach space. So the Mishnah says nefesh atuma, a small mausoleum, so a small little constrained building. Since this building does not have a tefah of space in it, so the only thing that applies is tumah ritzutza, So the tumah shoots up and down, but if someone touches on the sides of the building, they're not tume. Then the Mishnah continues, If it was a larger building, so then there was a space of a tefach inside, a tefach squared with a tefach of height. So then, So then, of course, that's the case of a kever sasum. That's when the halacha of Tumas kever applies, and someone who touches any part of that building is tame. So the Mishnah says very clearly that a kever requires a tefach of space, in order to have the status of Tomas Kever. But, Rab Chaim asks a very good question on this, because the Gemara in Nazir Nun Gimel, when it's talking about the Kever Sosum, so it's talking about this whole halacha of Tomas Kever, it says, Amar Mar bokas, ve'ola bokas It explains the whole concept of Tomas Kever by invoking Tomas So it seems to say that the essence of Tomas Kever is the halacha of Tomas and Tumar specifically applies when there is no Tefach. So the Gemara in Nazir seems to be saying that the whole concept of Tumas Kever is mainly when there is no Tefach of space inside, so there's Tumar So this is now a major contradiction with the Mishnah that defines the whole Halacha of Kever sasum only when there's a minimum of a tafach, whereas the Gemara in Nazir seems to define the halacha of Kever sasum specifically as less than a tafach because of the Tomah Ritzutza. So in order to resolve this contradiction, Rab Chaim suggests a very important conceptual distinction, and he says that even though the halacha all over Ohalos, so one of the basic rules of Ohalos, of the rules governing being in the same room with a body, is that a room is the Find as having the space of a tefach, but says Rab Chaim that's different than the reason why we need a tefach when it comes to Tumas Kever. Even though it's the same measurement in both of them, but they work differently. It's not that Tumas Kever needs to be an ohel in order to be considered a kever. That's how we would have made sense of this at first glance because we see the same measurement for a regular ohel invoked with regards to kever. But Rab Chaim is saying even though it's the same. measurement Measurement, But there's different conceptual explanations behind each of these halachas. The rule of a regular ohel, what he calls an ohel hava'ah, which means that it permeates the tumah throughout the whole room. So there's a halakha there that in order to do so, there needs to be space of a tefach. But then there's a different halakha, which is that in order for something to be considered a kever, it also has to have the space of a tefach. And Rab Chaim calls this an ohel hatuma. This is a roof for Tumah. So there's two different concepts of Ohel. One is the ordinary one of Ohel hava, that a body which is in a room with the space of a tefach goes all over the room. The Tumah is transported all over that space. And the other is in Ohel HaTumah, that any body in a grave, if there's a tefach, so that is considered a room of Tumah. But it works differently than the first Ohel hava. And Rab Chaim says that this distinction makes logical sense too because we have no need for the rules of Ohel in order to permeate the impurity throughout the whole grave. So the reason why the impurity goes to all parts of the grave is not because of ohel, but that's the very essence of the rule of tumas kever. The Torah itself is saying that throughout the whole space of the grave is Tame. We don't need to base that on the rules of ohel. So if that's the case, we don't need this ohel hava when it comes to a kever. It wouldn't add anything because anyways that entire space is Tame since it's a grave. So having an ohel hava is unnecessary. The only thing we need is an ohel Hatuma. We need to define this space as a grave and that the halacha only defines something as a kever when there is a space of a tefach in that. So that's why all that's necessary for Tumas kever is ohel Hatuma, but we don't need an ohel havaah. So this makes sense logically. So now this is going to resolve the contradiction between the Mishnah in Alos and the Gemara in Nazir because there's a basic difference Between these two types of ohel. The standard ohel, hava'ah, which transports the tumma throughout, so there we require a tefach in addition over and above the body itself. Outside of the body, there has to be a space of a tefach, as opposed to the ohel hatuma, the tumas kever, where the measurement of the tefach includes the body. And the explanation for this is because when it comes to a regular ohel, so the body, which is tumah ritsutsa, the tumah goes up and down, that undermines it, negates the regular tumas ohel. So since the body is taking up some of the airspace of the tefach, the body is. At odds with the overall Tumas Ohel. So unless it has a Tefach over and above the body, we can't apply the status of Ohel to this type of Tumah. So basically when it comes to regular Tumah, the body's Tumah, which is Tumah Ritzutza, versus the Tumah of that space, which is Tumas Ohel, are in conflict with each other. So the Tefach measurement of the Ohel needs to be over and above the body in order to to overcome the tumeritzutza of the body. But if the body is taking up part of that tefach airspace so then there's no Ohel. As opposed to the Ohel hatuma of Tumas Kether, so there, as Rab Chaim just explained, the concept of Ohel is different than the standard Ohel. So in this new form of Ohel, the Ohel hatuma, which does not need to transport the Tumah throughout, and it doesn't block between the Tumah and someone above it, it doesn't have those details of halacha the way the regular Ohel does, rather it's just a... A new concept that the Torah introduced—that one of the details in order to make something tumas kever—is that there must be an airspace of a tefach. So there, the body is not going to conflict with the airspace of the tefach. So that's why the body counts as part of that overall tefach in order to create Tumas Kever. So that's how Rab Chaim explains the distinction between a regular Ohel, why the body can't be part of the Tefach airspace, versus the Ohel for Tumas Kever, where the body is part of the Tefach airspace. And the reason is because in a regular Ohel, Tumar conflicts with the concept of Tumas Ohel, as opposed to the status of Ohel for Tumas Kever, which doesn't conflict with Tumar and Rab Chaim adds that this distinction makes very good logical sense because the rivet in chapter 12 explicitly writes that the reason the body doesn't count as part of the tefach airspace is because tumah is in conflict with the concept of ohel. Because tumah means that the Tuma goes up and down, whereas ohel means that the Tuma permeates throughout the entire structure and that it does not go all the way up. It stops at the roof. So there's two major conflicts between these types of Tumah. So since a body brings with it Tumah ritsutza, it can't be part of the Tefach to create the Ohel because those two things are in contradiction with each other. But says Rab Chaim, that only applies to the regular Halacha of Ohel. But the new concept of Ohel that he's introducing to explain tumas Kever, so that doesn't have the Halacha of stopping the body from from going up because as we saw when it comes to Kever, the body does continue to go all the way up even though there's a roof and it also doesn't permeate throughout because again the entire Kever is already tame, so we don't need this Ohel to transport the Tumah so since neither of those is applicable to Tumah's Kever so there's no contradiction between Tumah and the Ohel concept when it comes to Tumah's Kever so that's why the body doesn't undermine the tefach airspace for Tumas kever but it could be a part of it so this distinction that a body can't be part of the tefach for a regular ohel but it can be for a kever makes perfect sense when we understand that the two details of halacha that are a conflict between Tumas ohel and Tumar that the Tuma goes to the sides and that the Tuma doesn't go all the way up do not apply when it comes to ohel of a kever so therefore Tumar and Tumas Ohel of a Kether can work together to create the Tefach airspace. And the Gemara in Nazir now takes this idea even one step further that Tumaritssa is integral to the whole concept of Tumas Kether. The basis of Tumas Kether is is the tumaritzutsa because that's what makes the tumma go all the way up. So we need tumaritzutsa in order to end up with a case of tumas kever. But that doesn't in any way contradict the mishnah in alos that says that there needs to be a tefach of airspace because that too is part of the halachas of tumas kever. That it does require a tefach of airspace. Less than that is just tumaritzutsa, but it's not considered tumas kever. But even though it requires a tefach of airspace, that that doesn't mean there's no Tomeritzuza, the way it means with a regular Ohel. But with regards to tumas Kever... When the halacha says that it requires a tefach, that means together with the body, meaning together with the tumaritzutza. That tefach is not independent of the body, it's including the body. So all together, including the body, there's a tefach. So that's how we combine the tumaritzutza, which comes from the body that the Gemara in Nazir focuses on, together with the halacha and ohalos, that there needs to be an airspace of a tefach, but again, including the Tumar So now Rab Chaim has answered his original contradiction, even though in general in Ohalos, when we say that it needs a Tefach airspace, that implies that it can't be Tumar but when it comes to Tumas Kever, we're combining these two concepts together. It requires Tumar as well as a Tefach airspace and this is illustrated by the fact that the Tefach airspace is going to include the body in it. So now this is exactly the source for the raivid's halacha because the Ravid explicitly said that the only time tumas kever applies is when there is an exact tefach including in it the body that's the only case of Tomas Kever and now the way Rab Chaim's interpreted the Mishnah and Alos together with the Gemara in Nazir we see exactly where the Ravid got this from and now that we understand the basis for the Ravid's rulings so now this is also going to answer the question Rab Chaim began this paragraph with which is when there's more than a Tefach so the Ravid rules that there would be Tomas Maga if someone touches it they're Tamei but if they go over it there's no Tomas Ohel so so, Rabbi Chaim's question was, how could the Raiva differentiate between Maga and Ohel when they're both derived from the same Pasuk? So now the answer is, based on these principles, the way Rab Chaim's explained them, so it makes perfect sense. Because when there's exactly a Tefach, so then there's both Tumas Kever, as well as Tumar together. So that's why there's both Tumas Maga and Tumas Ohel, both stringencies together, and that is the concept of Tumas Kever. But once there's more than a Tefach, so now that overcomes the tumaritzutsa. So now it negates the ohel aspect of this. The tuma no longer goes all the way up because it's blocked by the tefach ohel, which is the standard halacha of ohel. That once there's a tefach airspace, it blocks the body. So in this case too, once there's a tefach of airspace over and above the body, it blocks the ritsutza, and there's no more tumas ohel over and above that roof but Tumas Maga is unaffected because the Tumas Maga to begin with was never based on the Tumar Ritsutsa. It's just based on the fact that this is a grave. So even though now there's more than a Tefach airspace which stopped the Tumar Ritsutsa, that's not going to stop the Tumas Maga if someone touches this Kever. So that's why the Raivid rules that a Kever that has more than a Tefach of airspace, there's no Ohel, but there still is Tumas Maga. So now that we understand the basis behind the Rivad's rulings that accounts for why he differentiates between Maga and Ohel, even though they're in the same Pasuk, because they operate differently. Tumas Ohel of the Kever is based on Tumaritsutsa. So once Tumar is overcome, meaning there's more than a tefach of airspace, so there can't be any more Tomas Ohel because of the kever. But Tomas Maga of the kever is separate. It's just because someone touched a kever. So that applies even if there's more than a tefach of airspace. So this is the explanation for the Raivid's approach and it accounts for the details of his rulings. Now in the third paragraph, Rab Chaim returns to explain the Rambam's approach because he disagrees with the Raiv in some of his key conceptual points. Now, the Rambam disagrees with the Ravid that when it comes to Tomas Kever, the Tefach can include the dead body. The Rambam holds that just like every Ohel, the Tefach has to be over and above the body. So too with Tomas Kever, the Tefach, in order to make it into a Kever, must be over and above the body. So unlike the Ravid, who differentiates between these two concepts of Ohel, and this was at the basis of Rab Chaim's whole analysis, the Rambam does not distinguish between the halacha of Ohel generally versus the Ohel for a Tomas Kever, but he holds that in both of them, there must be a tefach in addition to the airspace of the body. So Rab Chaim explains that the point the Rambam disagrees about is that he holds that Toma Ritzutza is in conflict with the concept of Ohel for Tumas Kever. Now, even though, as Rab Chaim said, the concept of Ohel for a Kever is different than a regular Ohel, so the Rambam's not disagreeing with that, but he does disagree with the next step in the analysis of the Raivid, that since they're different concepts, the Ohel of a Kever is not in conflict with Tumar And the Rambam holds that even though theoretically an argument could be made, that those two forms of tuma are not in conflict but anytime there's tuma ritsutsa that's in conflict with other tumas so this body can only emanate tuma in one way if it's giving off tuma ritsutsa then that's going to preclude it from giving off tumas ohel so we can't use the body in order to create both tuma ritsutsa as well as the ohel of the kever if we're using it for ritsutsa then it can't be part of the overall tafah Airspace, And in order to create the ohel of the kever, there would need to be a tefach over and above the body. And Rab Chaim reads this in to the end of the language of the Rambam, where he formulated the principle. Meis. This is the rule. B'ohel haya Anytime there's tumaritsutza, So that means the Tumah goes up and down, but it does not permeate the Ohel. So Rab Chaim reads into this language of the Rambam that here he's formulating this exclusive idea that every body can be giving off Tumah in one way, and if it's giving off Tumah Ritzutza, so it's shooting up and down, it can't be part of creating the Ohel, so that's why the body doesn't count towards the Tefach airspace. So this is the point on which the Rambam disagrees with the Raibid, that there is a conflict between the concept of tumeritsutsa and the ohel hatuma of kever. So now, Rab Chaim asks on the Rambam, what about the Gemara in Nazir, which explicitly says that the basis for Tumas Kever is the idea of Tumar Ritzutza. According to the Rambam, that they're in conflict, why is the Gemara explaining the concept of Tumas Kever using Tumar Ritzutza? So Rab Chaim first says that maybe the Rambam didn't have that version, so he had a different edition of the Gemara, which didn't connect these two ideas. But then he says, even according to our printed editions of the Gemara, which do have that line explaining Tomas Kever based on Tomer Ritzutza, so we could still explain it conceptually according to the Rambam. That what the Gemara means to say is that the essence of how the Torah defined this new concept of Tomas Kever is... Is through the idea of Tumar Ritzutza. So the idea of tumas kever is that the Torah is saying even when there's more than a tefach of airspace, which ordinarily overcomes and stops the tumarit but in the case of the tumas kever, the Tumar Ritzutza continues. So the Torah is basically creating a turbo tumor when it comes to a grave, and that's the meaning of this idea of tumas kever, that the Tumar Ritzutza is never stopped even even by a large structure. So that's exactly why the Rambam rules that even when there's way more than a tefach, it's still Tumas Kever and it's Metameh Ba'ohel. So that explains the conceptual formulation of the Rambam. But Rabbi Chaim asks that this doesn't seem to fit into the language of the Rambam because as he just said, the Rambam explicitly contrasts that anytime there's Tumor it's not Tumas Kever. So the Rambam seems to create Two alternate tracks which can't overlap. One is Tumar Ritzutza, when there's less than a tefach, and one is Tumas Kether when there's a tefach or more. So that formulation does not seem to fit into Rab Khayim's idea that the Rambam is saying that Tumas Kether is a turbo tumor So to answer this, Rab Khaim suggests that there are two different aspects of the halakha of Tomas Kever, and each of the formulations of the Gemara and the Rambam are going to apply to one of them. So that's how he's going to resolve this contradiction that the Gemara seems to say that Tomas Kever is based on Toma whereas the Rambam seems to say that the two conflict. So the answer is that each formulation applies to a different aspect of this halacha. The two aspects are, number one, that a Tomas Kever applies to everything surrounding the Kever and someone who's on top of it. So anyone who comes into contact with the side of any part of the kever or is on top of it now becomes Tameh because of tumas kever. Now that halacha is based on the concept of Tumah The reason why the kever gives off tuma outside of it is because of Tumah that the tuma goes all over. But then there's a second aspect to this halacha which is not outside of the kever but within the kever itself. So anyone that has any contact with the actual kever is also tame because of tumas kever. And that is a very different sort of halacha. That's not based on tuma ritzutza, which goes everywhere, but that's based on the exact opposite that the Torah said that a grave is intrinsically tame. So anyone that has any contact with the grave itself is included in the law of the Torah that there's tuma in coming into contact with a grave and that has nothing to do with tumaritsuta in fact there's a conflict between that and tumaritsuta because so long as the tuma is flying everywhere because of tumaritsuta we can't use this dead body to create the tuma of the kever itself because the body is giving off Tuma which is going everywhere, that's Tuma but it's not creating the status of a Kever on the grave that it's lying in so that's where the Rambam's formulation is correct, that there is a conflict between Tuma Ritsutsa versus Tuma's Kever because so long as we're using this body for Tuma the Kever itself is not inherently becoming Tamek, so the Rambam resolves this tension by saying that once there's a t- pefach or more, so that negates the tumah it stops the process of the Ritzutza tumah, and it transforms it into a Tumas Kever, so now the grave itself becomes tameh. So the Rambam's formulation applies to that aspect of the Halacha. But once it becomes a grave, so now the Gemara's formulation kicks back in, and now the tumah is what makes it that the second aspect of the Halacha applies, that anyone who comes in contact with the sides of the grave or is over the grave is also Tameh. That's only based on the Ritsutza that the Tuma is going in all the directions. So, for the second aspect of Tuma's Kever, that it's Metameh outside of the Kever itself, it creates Tuma in the surrounding areas. So, for that, we need to apply the Gemara's concept. Of Tumar So now that we understand the Rambam's approach, so his rulings are also going to make sense. Because if there's no separate tefach, there's only a tefach including the body, so then the whole process never gets kicked off to begin with because you can never stop the ritzutza part of it. Because since the ritzutza is in conflict with the ohel and there is no separate tefach, to negate the ritzuta, So the Tumor is all that's left over here And there can be no Tumas Kever Because the whole thing never gets started So that's exactly why the Rambam rules That when there is no separate Tefach over the body It's not a Tumas Kever at all It's only Tumor But once there is a separate Tefach So at that point the Tumor stops It becomes a Kever And then after that the Tumor kicks back in To the whole process of the Kever as the Gemara Nazir explains And that's why there's Tumas Ohel And Tuma for touching the sides of the Kever So again, now that we understand the basis For the Rambam's conceptual approach Now we understand how the details of his halacha All fit beautifully in To his overall understanding of this Halakha So Rab Chaim does a beautiful job Explaining how the Rambam and the Raivid's rulings Both follow out of their conceptual understanding Of the relationship between and Tumas Kever. And at the end of this paragraph, he sums it up very nicely. The Ravid holds that the concept of Ohel for Tumas Kever is different than the regular concept. So it's not in conflict at all with the concept of Tumar tzutza. They can both coexist. So when the Gemara in Nazir says that the basis of Tumas Kever is Tumar tzutza, it's referring specifically to the case where there's only a Tefach. So there's still Tumar tzutza, and that's when the Halachas of Tumas Kever apply. But once there's more than a Tefach, so that negates the Tumar and it's no longer Tomas Kever. Whereas the Rambam holds that the whole point of having a tefach to begin with for tumas kever is because if there's less than a tefach, then it's just tumar So there needs to be a tefach in order to transition from tumar to tumas kever. So there is some conflict between tumar versus the concept of tumas kever. So that's why the tefach for the kever needs to be over and above the body. Because if it's including the body, then tumar can't be a part of making this into a kever. So that's why the Rambam requires a tefach over and above the body so that it stops the tumaritzah turns this into a kever and once it becomes a kever so then the tumaritzah comes back as the gemara says and it now creates tumah over the kever and on the sides of the kever so it expands the tumah to the surrounding areas around the kever so that's exactly why according to the Rambam the tumas kever applies even when there's more than a tefach. It doesn't end just because there's an ohel, which is a tefach, even though originally that stops the Tumaretzutza, but the whole halacha of Tomas Kever is that the Tumaretzutza then returns and creates the Tumas ohel in this case, so that's going to continue no matter how high the building is. So this explains the rulings of the Rambam and the Raivid and their two respective approaches to this halacha. Now, in the fourth paragraph, Rab Chaim continues the discussion to understand the Rambam and the Raivids approaches. And he adds a major conceptual point to the whole idea of Tomas Kever. And he begins with the question of Tosvos in Nazir. Tosvos asks, how could the Gemara say that the basis for Tomas Kever is Tumar which goes up and down, when Tomas Kever is Metame? even on the side of the body. So it's not only directly vertically above the body, even on the side of the body. Over the grave is still metame. So, how could the basis of that be tumor rutzutsa, which just goes up and down if tumas kever goes also to the sides of the grave, not only directly above the body? So Rab Chaim suggests an answer to Tosas's question that the concept of Tumaritsutsa applies to both the dead body as well as to the grave itself. So it's not just the body which is creating the Tumor but the very area of the grave has its own ritsutsa which goes up and down. So that's why if someone is above the grave, even though they're not above the body, they're still included in the Tumor which comes from the grave, from the Kever itself, over and above the Tumor of the body. So now Rab Chaim asks a question on this idea that the grave itself has tumeretsutza, because when it comes to ordinary ohalos, so a regular Ohel Hava, which transports the Tumah to the whole structure, does not have Tumah Ritzutza. It's clear that Tumah Ritzutza only comes from the dead body itself, not from the Ohel. And this is clear from the Rambam in Hochs Halacha Aleph. in the case of a barrel, the Rambam says that if there's Tumah inside of the barrel, anything which is directly beneath the body in the barrel is Tumah. So it's clear that even though the Tuma is permeating throughout the entire barrel because of Ohalos, but the Tuma Ritsutza, which goes up and down, does not emanate from the entire barrel, it only emanates from the body itself. So that means tumma ritsutsa only applies to the dead body itself, not to the extension of the Tuma of the dead body through a regular Ohel havaah, which transports the Tuma throughout the entire structure. But that does not have the rules of Tumma ritsutsa, meaning it doesn't go up and down. But still, when it comes to Tumas Kever, says Rab Chaim that we could apply Tumar to Tumas Kever because Tumas Kever is stronger than Tumas Ohel. And he suggests two possible formulations. Either because when it comes to Tumas Kever, it's not just moving around the Tuma the way the Ohel does, but rather the entire Kever itself becomes Tame. So the Kever is intrinsically Tume, not just moving around the Tumma from the dead body, so that's why the kever itself has tumma ritsutza. Or alternatively, Rab Chaim suggests that the Tumas kever is together with the Tumas mace of the body, so it's the exact same form of tumma. So that's why it's stronger than a regular ohel that Tumar applies to the entire kever. So according to Rab Chaim, the solution to Tostas' question is that the Tumar ritsutsa emanates not only from the dead body itself, but from the entire kever. And that's why over the kever, even not over the body, is still tummy because of Tumar That's how the Gemara can say that the basis of Tumas' kever is Tumar And even though Tumar ritsutsa doesn't apply to regular, regular ohel but it does apply to thomas kever which is stronger but now rab chaim asks a question on this approach because once it's clear that there is thomas kever outside of the body itself. So the way he's explaining it above the body itself is Tuma Ritzutza, but on the sides of the body, which are still the grave is considered Tumas Kever. And that is its own type of Tumma, not just because of the Ritsutsa of the dead body. So if that's the case, why do we need to apply Tumma at all to Tumas Kever? The Gemara is saying that the basis for Tumas Kever is the Tuma Ritsutsa, and Rab Chaim's been explaining that once it becomes a kever, so the tumah is what makes the tumah go all over but why do we even need that? Why is the kever status alone not enough to create tumah all over? And especially because there is a form of tumah, which is tumas maga which does come to the kever inherently without the need for tumah So why don't we say the same thing for tumas ohel, that even without the tumah of the dead body, there's intrinsic Tumah in the Kever itself. So basically, why do we need to say that the whole basis of tumas Kever is Tumah Rutsutsa and we can't just say that the Kever is tame in and of itself? So to answer this, Rab Chaim's going to introduce a very key concept in the meaning of Tumas Keber. And this is based on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Mem Zayin. The Gemara rules that Kever HaNimtza, if someone finds a grave buried on their land and the person had no right to be there, so this landowner did not give the right to this person to be buried there, so they're allowed to remove the body. And the Gemara says, Mekomo tahor, that the land is now Tahar. So it does not have the tumah of Tumas once the body is removed. And the Rambam records this halacha in Tomas meis ches hei, kever ha If someone was rightfully buried in a grave, so you're not allowed to move their body, being mekomo tahar. But if they do go ahead and remove the body, so that land is now tahar. So basically the whole halacha of Tomas kever only applies when the body is still there. But if it's removed, it's taken out of the grave, so then it's no longer Tomas kever on that land. But Rab Chaim wonders when the body is... Still in the grave, so it's clear that the Torah said that there's Tumas Kever then, but why is there Tumas Kever? Is it that since there was a body buried in this grave, so that now transforms this land? It gets the status of a kever, and once it becomes a kever, there's tumas kever. So it's its own independent form of tumah, nothing having to do with the body, even though the body is obviously what created this into a grave to begin with. So the way to formulate this in the first approach would be that there are two types of tumah: either a dead body or a kever, and they're independent of each other. Now, obviously, the case of a kever is only going to exist when there is a dead body in it. But that's in order to set up the case in which the Torah introduces its new halacha, that this kever now has tumah independent of the dead body's form of tumah. That's approach number one. Approach number two is that the tumah's kever is based on the tumah of the dead body. So it's not an independent type of tuma, and it's also not just that the body is what creates this as a kever, but it's not needed for the tuma. But the dead body is what continues to make the kever something that is tame. Now, even though it's clear that the kever is metame even not directly with the body. So as we said, over the kever, but not over the body, is still mitame. So the kever's tumma expands beyond just the airspace directly above the body, but still it's only as a result of the tuma of the body, which is permeating throughout the kever. So at the end of the day, both the dead body, together with it being in a grave, are both necessary in order to create tumma's kever, but the comes from the dead body. So, Rab Chaim proves from a number of places in the Rambam like this second formulation. One is the Rambam in Hilchus Avel Perik Gimel Halacha Bez. The Rambam rules that if a Kohen touches the grave, he gets the punishment of lashes. But if he touches the shrouds, the clothing which touched the dead body, then even though he's he does not get lashes. So the Rambam is saying that a kohen only gets lashes if he comes in contact with tumah, which comes directly from the dead body. But if he comes into contact with a secondary contact of the dead body, like the clothes, so then he would not get lashes. Now, the Rambam says that if he touches the grave, he does get lashes. So that must mean, according to the Rambam, the grave is not a derivative of the dead body because then it would be similar to the clothes of the dead body. The fact that the Kohen gets lashes for touching the grave means that the grave itself is one, it's part and parcel of the dead body so when the Kohen touches the grave it's as if he came into contact with the Tumah of the dead body itself so again that follows the second formulation that the grave is not an independent form of Tumah but it's one form of Tumah together with the dead body, that's why the Kohen gets lashes in that case another proof to this formulation is from the Rambam in Nezirus If someone accepted a Vow of nazirus while they were in a cemetery, so that's prohibited because a nazir is not allowed to come in contact with a dead body, so he's not allowed to enter a cemetery. And this guy accepted the nazirus vow while he was in the cemetery. So the Rambam says even if he remains in the cemetery for a few days, that doesn't count towards his nazirus. The loke al he does get Malkus because he accepted a nazirus vow and he violated it by coming into contact with a dead body. Now, when he leaves, he doesn't need to shave his head to restart the Nazirus time because he never started. And likewise, if he became Tame while he was in the cemetery, so then he would not need to shave and restart the Nazirus because he never started. So the Rambam differentiates that even though he never really started the Nazirus vow, but he does get Malchus, he gets the punishment of lashes because he was standing in a cemetery while he was supposed to be a Nazir. Now, this is based on what the Rambam rules in Naziru's Hey Tesvav, Nazir Shinit Malames, Tumas Shiva, a Nazir who became tame through a dead body. So the Rambam writes, whether it's the type of Tumma that he would have to restart, bein whether it's a lower form of Tuma so he would not need to restart his Nazir vow. Either way, Hareza Loka. So the Rambam there rules that the punishment of Malkus, the lashes for a Nazir coming into contact with a dead body applies more broadly than the cases where he would have to restart his vow. So there are some types of Tomas Mace where the Nazir does not have to restart his vow, like where he's standing in the cemetery, but he still gets the punishment of lashes. So it's based on that, that the Rambam rules, that if he accepts the vow of Nazirus while standing in a cemetery, he doesn't need to restart, but he's still going to get lashes, because the lashes are more broadly applied. So, Rab Chaim comments that even though it's true, the Rambam applies the lashes punishment broadly, but it still seems that the Nazir has to come in contact with the dead body itself in order to get punished. Because the way the Torah formulated this punishment is lo yitame lahem Mosam that the Nazir can't come into contact with a dead person, and al nefashos mes loyavo again, he can't come into contact with a dead body. So it seems clear that to say the Nazir violated the Torah prohibition and he gets the punishment of lashes, he needs to come in contact with the dead body itself and not a derivative of the dead body. So the fact that the Rambam rules that coming into contact with the grave is enough to give the Nazir lashes indicates again that the Rambam holds the grave is not a derivative. It's not another independent form of Tumah aside from from the dead body but it's part and parcel. It's all one thing. It's a form of Tumah along with the dead body. So that's why the Nazir touching the grave is as if he came in contact with the dead body itself and that's why he gets the punishment of lashes. And a final proof is also from this ruling in the Rambam because the Rambam rules that so long as the Nazir is standing in the cemetery, those days don't count towards his vow of Nazirus. Now that's different from if the Nazir touches the clothing that touched the dead body. So the shrouds, because there the Gemara in Nazir, Nundalit, explicitly says that even though the Nazir becomes Tameh by touching the clothing of the dead body, but those days of his tuma continue to count towards his overall days of Nazirus. And the Rambam records that ruling in nazir Zayin Ches. So the Rambam is making a clear distinction between if the Nazir touches the grave, in which case those days of Tumah do not count towards his overall vow, even though he doesn't need to start the whole thing all over again, but those days of Tumah do not count towards the fulfillment of his vow versus if he touches the clothing of a dead body where those days of Tumah do count towards the fulfillment of his vow. So again, this indicates that there's a difference between the clothing, those that touch the dead body, which are a derivative of the dead body. So therefore, they're more lenient with regards to the Nazir counting his days, even when he touched them. As opposed to the Tuma of the Kever, which is more strict because it's considered like the Nazir came into contact with the dead body itself. So that's why it's a notch more strict than the clothes which touch the dead body. So this is a third proof from the Rambam where he seems to indicate like the second formulation that a grave's Tuma comes from the dead body. It's all considered one thing and it's not that the grave is a secondary form of Tuma because there was a dead body in it. So that's why these three halachas follow, that the Kohen gets lashes for touching the grave, the Nazir gets lashes for touching the grave, and the Nazir who touched the grave, those days of Tumah do not count towards the ultimate fulfillment of his vow. So now, using this, Rab Chaim returns and he answers the question of why the Gemara says that the concept of Tumas Kever is based on Tumar Retsutza. And he explains like this, because since the whole reason why there's Tumas Kever is because it's together with the dead body, so now there's a serious question on this. Because it makes sense that inside of the grave where the body is, so of course that area is tame, because it's a Kever with a body. But on top of the grave, once the body is covered over, so the person standing on the covering of the grave is standing in a place which is more like an empty grave. And as we said, once the body is removed, there's no more tumma. So now the question is, how does anyone that comes in contact with a kever have Tomas kever if the place they're standing on is really like an empty grave where there is no Tomas kever? Now, if we would accept the earlier formulation that the grave itself is independently tamei, not just because of the tuma of the dead body, so then this wouldn't be a question because even though the grave is covering over the dead body, but since the grave is inherently tamei, so there's still Tumas kever by standing on top of it. But since Rab Chai improved the other formulation that the grave only has tuma because of the dead body in it, so now the raises the question that if someone is standing on top of the grave, so that area is like an empty grave and there shouldn't be tuma. And Rab Chaim adds even more to this question. Not only is it like an empty grave, but if someone is standing on top of the covering of the grave, the ground underneath him should protect him against the tuma of the dead body. So not only should it not Add to the Tuma because of Tuma's Kever, but it should even make the situation better for him and protect him from any Tuma coming from the dead body. Because since the whole Tuma of this Kever is based on the fact that the body is within it, so once it's covered over and that covering now creates a structure of the grave that has the body in it, so anyone outside of that should be protected by the structure from the of the body because that's the way toma works that a tumah which is enclosed within a structure, the structure protects people who are on the outside from that dead body. So, ironically, the covering of the grave should not add to the tumah, but it should actually protect the person from the body enclosed inside of that kever. So that's Rab Chaim's question on this formulation: How could we ever have a case of tumas kever when, according to this formulation, the kever should work against the dead body and lessen the tumah? Not increase it. So the answer to this question is going to answer the main question Rab Chaim posed in this paragraph, because the Gemara is answering this question by saying that the basis of Tumas Kever is Tumar In other words, the way to answer Rab Chaim's questions as to why the covering of the grave doesn't protect the person from the dead body is because of Tumar which means that the dead body's Tuma goes up. So that's why we don't view the covering of the Kever as a protection for the person against the dead body, but instead the whole tumas Kever concept could exist because of Toma which means that the Tuma goes through the covering. So that's why the Gemara says that the whole concept of tumas Kever is based on Toma in order to answer the question that Rab Chaim just asked. And that explains why the Gemara can't say that tumas Kever alone is enough to make the whole thing tame. Why do we need to rely on Tumar Ritzutza, As Rab asked originally, once we know that the Kever has independent toma so why do we need Tumar Ritzutza? The answer is because the Tumas Kever alone would run into Rab question. That why doesn't the covering on top protect and stop the Tumah of the body. So the answer to that is because of Tumah Ratzutza. And especially, Rab Chaim adds, because the whole approach of the Raived is based on the story in Brachos that they would skip over the caskets and the Gemara explains that because since there was a Tefach inside the casket, it stopped the Tumah from going above. So the casket became a break to prevent the Tumah from coming out. So that's exactly a case of Tumma's Kever, where having more than a tefach of space stopped the whole Tumah, it prevented people from becoming Tameh, not increased the Tumah. So that's exactly Rab Chaim's question, why doesn't that apply to every grave? How could we ever have the concept of tumas Kever if there's a tefach of space inside? So that's exactly what the Gemara is answering, that it's based on Tumah Ritzutza. Whenever Tumah ritzutza applies, so that's going to break through the covering so that the Covering no longer protects the person from the Tumah that's inside because the Tumah goes through it. Now in the parentheses, Rab Chaim adds that there's still a problem according to the rivid's approach. His answer definitely works for the Rambam because the Rambam holds that when there's more than a tefach of space, it's still considered Tumas Kever. So again, the question is, why isn't that tefach of space in Ohel which breaks between the tumah and the person on top? So the answer, according to the Rambam, is because there's Tumar so that penetrates through the covering. So according to the Rambam, the explanation of the Gemara is needed. But according to the Rivid, the whole halacha of Tumas Kever only applies when there's an exact tefach, and part of that tefach is the body. So there doesn't seem to be this question Rab Chaim's asking to begin with, because since there isn't a tefach of space, Over and above the body to create an ohel. So of course there's no separation between the person standing on top of the kever and the dead body. So if we don't have the question, then we shouldn't need the answer of the Gemara that it's based on Tumor Tzutsa. So it seems like according to the Ravid, we still have a problem. Why does the Gemara base the whole concept of Tumas Kever on Tumra Tzutsa? So first, Rab Chaim suggests, based on the Gemara in Chulin Kufchav Hei, that there is still a question according to the Ravid, even though the Ravid holds that there is no Ohel. So the break between the person and the dead body is not due to the laws of. Ohel, oh, but there is another leniency as he referenced before because the dead body is enclosed in the grave. So anything which is enclosed in a structure, the structure protects people from that Tumah. So even though the Ravid holds that there is no leniency based on Ohel oh, because there's no tefach of space above the body, but there still would be a leniency because the body is enclosed in the grave, so we'd have the question of how could there exist Tumah's kever? But Rab Chaim points out that this would not be a very strong question because we could just answer simply that the entire grave becomes part of the Tumah so it doesn't protect against the dead body which is inside the grave because it's not that the body is enclosed by the Kever but rather the whole Kever becomes part of the Tumah of the dead body so that's why the person standing on top of it is tameh. So we need a different formulation for the Raivid why there's a question that the Gemara needs to... ...to answer it by saying that Tomas Kever is based on Tomer So, Rab Chaim proposes, based on a comment of the Raivid in chapter 12... ...the Ravid says that the reason why a body cuts into the airspace of a tefach, of the grave is because of tumor In other words, if there was no tumor so then the body wouldn't cut in, in which case there would be an ohel tefach. So once there's an ohel, now we're back to the original question, why doesn't the ohel protect the people from the dead body? So that's why the rivet has to introduce the idea of Tumar in order to explain why there is no Tumas Ohel because the body, by giving off the Tumma of Tumar cuts into that tefach. So it cuts into the ohel. So that's why the concept of Tumas Kever can exist. So for the Raivid, it's also true that the Gemara's formulation that Tumas Kever is based on Tumar is needed because otherwise we would see the whole airspace of a Tefach as an ohel. And that would break between the person standing on the Kever and the dead body underneath. So both the Rambam and the Rivid could explain why the Gemara needs to say that Tumas Kever is based on Tumar so now, using all the new concepts he just developed, Rab Chaim returns to the central question he's been dealing with throughout this piece, which is, why does the raivid differentiate in a case where there's more than a tefach of airspace? So the raivid says there's no tumas ohel, but there is tumas maga. So Rab Chaim asked that both of these forms of Tuma are derived from the same pasuk. So why does the raivid differentiate between them? So now Rab Chaim explains that since the whole reason we need Tumaritsutza is because if not for that, the Tefach would create an Ohel, which would then block the Tumah. So in order to get around that problem and explain how Tumas Kever works, the Ravid said that there's exactly a Tefach of space, including the body. So there's no Ohel which blocks it. So then we apply the Tumaritsutza to this case so that's how we have Thomas Cather. But if there would be more than a tefach of airspace, so then that would be a break because it would form its own structure. So that would block against the Tumar and there would be no Tumas Keber. But all of that is only with regards to Tumas Ohel. When it comes to Tumas Maga, so there's no rule that a structure blocks the Tumas Maga. So it doesn't matter whether there's exactly a tefach or more than a tefach. In either way, there's still going to be Tumas Maga, even if if there's a separate ohel structure here, it's still not going to stop the Tumas Maga. So Tumas Maga is not based on the Tumor being able to break through the structure. Tumas Maga takes effect in a kever even without the basis of Tumor So that's why it doesn't matter even if there's more than a tefach of airspace, there's nothing to block or prevent the Tumas Maga from taking effect. So this explains why the Raivid drew a distinction in the case where there's more than a tefach that Tomas Maga still applies but Tomas Ohel is blocked. But now Rab Chaim questions his explanation for the Raivid's distinction from another comment of the Raivid later on in chapter 25, where the Raivid indicates that it's not totally clear to him whether in fact there is Tumas Maga on a kever with more than a tefach of airspace. So from the fact that the Raivid himself vacillates on this point, so Rab Chaim questions whether his interpretation could be the right one. The Rambam later on in chapter Chapter twenty-five, Aleph writes, "Amud ha'omid besoch If there's a pillar in the middle of the house and there's a Tumar under it. So there's a dead body under this pillar. So in line with the Rambam's rulings that we've seen throughout, he writes that if there's a Tefach of airspace under the pillar between the body, so that's the Halacha of Tumas Kever, and the entire house becomes tame because it's all in Ohel, it's all a room containing a Kever. So again, the Rambam reiterates his overall position that Tumas Kever applies when there's a Tefach or more of airspace. Now, as expected, the rivet in line with his approach disagrees with this Rambam and he writes sham tefach the halacha of Tomas Kever only applies when there's an exact Tafach including the body but if there's a tefach over and above the body, so yesham halal Tafach panoy einu baohel then there is no Tumas Kever because as we've seen throughout the tefach of airspace above the body negates the Tumas Kever. So the Rambam and the Ravid so far are both in line with their approaches that we saw from Parak Zion that we've been discussing throughout this piece. But then the Ravid adds in another line. He says, You could suggest that even though there's no tumas ohel, when there's more than a tefach of airspace, but there is tumah that permeates, that goes to all the surroundings. At the Ravid ends, the Dvar that there is some evidence to support this. So Rab Chaim wants to understand what does this means, Kol that even though there's more than a Tefach of airspace, so there's no Tumas Ohel in this house in this case, but it's still mitame the surroundings. So he says that there's two options to understand this. Either it's referring to Tumas Maga, so that's similar language to how the Ravid described Tumas Maga earlier in Parag Zion. So maybe that's what he's referring to. And it's the same distinction again, that even though there's no Tumas Ohel, there still is Tumas Maga. So that would be an exact repeat of his view in chapter seven. Or there's another way to understand what he's saying in chapter 25. That's based on Sof Tumal The halacha is that if a dead body is going to be transported through a certain area, so that area already has Tumah, even before the body goes through it because we're expecting the body to be taken in that direction. So it could be what the means to say is even though there's no Tumas Ohel in this case, because again, there's no Tumas Kever because there's more than a tefach of airspace between the pillar and the dead body, but there is Sof Tumah Since we know that this body is going to be carried through the house, so there is Tuma throughout the house, not because of Tumas Ohel, but because of Sof Tumah And that's also the approach that Tosfos and Babibasra takes to explain the Ba'i as The case where he smashed the doorway, so the whole house has tumah. And Tosos explains that it's based on sof tumalotzis because we know that the body is going to have to be carried out through this house. So similarly, the Ravid might be taking a similar approach to explain this halacha that even though there's no tumas Ohel because of a kaver because there's too much airspace, but there is tumah throughout the house because of sof tumalotzis. But Rab Chaim leans towards the first idea that the Rivet is saying there's Tumas Maga, exactly as he said earlier in chapter 7. And the reason Rab Chaim interprets it that way is not to keep the Rivet's two comments in chapter 7 and chapter 25 consistent, but because the Rivet formulates it as Vyesh Lomar. One could say. So according to Rab Chaim, that means the Ravid is not totally sure. He's suggesting that there is a possibility that there could be another form of Tumah here. Now, if it's Sof tuma so there shouldn't be any doubt in the Ravid's mind as to whether or not there is Sof tuma because that seems like a very clear halacha. Of course there is Sof tuma in this case. So why is the Raivid indicating that there's possibly another form of Tuma? So it must be that he's talking about Tumas Maga, and he's not 100% sure if there is Tumas Maga or not, because his proof that there is Tumas Maga is the case in Baba Basra of Bayis Sheparatsas Pitsimov, where there's a hole instead of a doorway, so the Gemara rules that the Tuma permeates throughout the house. So it's not totally clear to the Raivid, is that because of Tumas Maga? Meaning, even though there's no Ohel, there is Maga. So if anyone touches any part of the house, they're Tame. Or is it like Tosfo said, because of Softumalatses? So basically, the rivet does not have a clear proof from the Gemara that there is Tumas Maga, even when there's no Tumas Ohel of the Kever. So that's why the raivet says, Yesh Lomar, one could suggest that possibly there's Tumas Maga in this case, even though there's no Ohel, because there's more than a tefakh of airspace. But again, the rivet is not totally clear, because his source for this in the Gemara, in Bab Basra, could be interpreted differently, as Tosvo said, based on Sof Tomalatzes. So now, if the rivet is repeating his view from chapter 7 and chapter 25, and again he's saying that when there's more than a tefak of airspace, even though there's no Tomas Ohel of the kever, but there is Tomas Maga if anyone touches it anywhere, but now the rivet is telling us an important piece that he's not totally sure about this distinction. He's suggesting it as a possibility. It's possible that even though there's no Tomas Ohel, there is Tomas Maga, but he's not entirely sure. So says Rab Chaim, that seems to undermine his explanation in the Rivid. Rab Chaim just explained that the Ravid's distinction is based on the fact that when there's more than a tefach of airspace, so that breaks, that stops the Tomas Ohel from continuing, like the general rule of Ohalos. So that's why there's no Tomas Ohel, but that doesn't affect the Tumas Maga in any way. So that's why it doesn't matter whether there's more than a tefach of airspace. Since it's a kever, there's going to be Tomas Maga wherever anyone touches it. Because the rules that in Ohel breaks the Tuma don't apply to Maga. So if that's the case, how could the Ravid suggest the possibility that there's no Tomas Maga when there's more than a tefach of airspace? The fact that the Ravid does have that possibility—that more than a tefach of airspace will break and separate—even with regard to Tomas Maga—indicates that he's not working with Rab Chaim's approach to explaining this. So in order to answer this, Rab Chaim suggests that the ohel that breaks between the Tumma and the person standing on the Kever, not only blocks the Tumma itself from going to the person, but more than that, it possibly also blocks the very Tuma's Kever itself. So, Rab Chaim's idea that he's been suggesting throughout that if there's a real ohel in this case, not only is it not going to make a worse situation of Tumma because of Tuma's Kever, but it would also protect the person from the dead body, we could ex- Extend that to say that a real ohel would even protect the person from the kever. It would negate the very Tomas kever itself. So now using this extended formulation, this will make sense of the comment in chapter 25. That's why he's not clear whether there's even Tumas Maga. It's not that the Ohel is going to break between the body and the Tumas Maga. As we've said, Ohel in general doesn't separate and protect when it comes to Tomas Maga. But what the Ohel would do in this case is block between the Tomas Kever and the person. So it would totally negate the entire Tumas Kever so that would affect not only the Tumas Ohel of the Kever but also the Tumas Maga. So that's why the rivet suggests that there is a possibility that even if a person touches a Kever that has more than a tefach of airspace there's not going to be Tumas Maga because that Kever itself is totally negated by the Ohel above it. So the Tumas Kever never reaches the person either way not through Ohel and not through Maga. So this will defend Rab Chaim's Overall approach, and it could still fit into the rivet. Now, as we know from the earlier comment of the rivid in chapter seven, the rivid seems to come down on the side that there is Tumas Maga, even if there's more than a Tefach of airspace. So that would mean that the rivid holds at the end of the day that the Ohel could break between the dead body and the person, but it doesn't break between the Tumas Kever and the person. So having a proper Ohel with more than a Tefach does not negate the. The entire Tumas Kever, so that's why if someone touches the Kever, there's still Tamei, but there's not Tumas Ohel when there's more than a Tefach of airspace because it does break with regards to the Tumas Ohel. So now this makes sense of the whole Raivid as Rabchaim Chaim already explained it throughout this piece, and that's why the Gemara needs to say that there has to be Tumor for Tumas Kever; otherwise, there's no way for the Tumas Ohel of the body. To reach the person standing on the grave. So this is Rab Chaim's approach to explain the Ravid and the various details of his rulings, and he fits it in also to the Ravid's comment in chapter twenty-five, where he seems unclear about this issue of Thomas Maga when there's more than a tefach of airspace. So now in the final paragraph, Rab Chaim finally returns to the first question that he began with, way at the beginning of this piece, the contradiction between the Ravid's two explanations for why the Gemara says there's a leniency for a Kohen to skip over a casket if there's a tefach in there. So Rab Chaim's now going to resolve this contradiction in the Ra'vid, but before doing so, he introduces one more conceptual debate between the Rambam and the Ra'vid over this whole issue. So the Rambam holds that Tumas Kever only applies when there's a tefach of airspace over and above the body, there has to be a clear tefach of airspace. And at that point, there's Tumas Kever. But that still relies on the idea of Tumor Ritzutza in order for the tumah to break through the covering of the grave. So Tumas Kever relies on Tumor Ritzutza so that the Ohel on top, the tefach on top, doesn't block the Tumah of the body from coming through. So, Rab Chaim wants to know within the Rambam, is this Tumah of Tumas Kever the regular Halacha of Tumah ritzutza, Or is it a new Halacha that the Torah created with regards to Tumas Kever? So, if it's a new form of Tumah ritzutza, which applies only in the case of Tumas Kever, what that means is that, in fact, the Tumah of the dead body is over. It's blocked because... Because of the ohel of a tefach, which is above it, so just like a regular ohel blocks tumaritzutsa, so too in the case of the kever, the ohel of a tefach, which is above it, blocks the tumaritzutsa. But the Torah introduced a new concept that there is tumaritzutsa for a body in a kever. In other words, the kever is what's giving off the tumaritzutsa. So according to this, the body is no longer giving off tumoritsutza because that tumoritsutza has been blocked by the ohel. Now it's the kever instead which is giving off the tumoritsutza that the Gemara refers to as the basis for tumas kever. So that's one way to formulate this. The other is to say that the body itself is still giving off the Tumaret even though an ordinary Ohel of a Tefach blocks the Tumaret But in the case of Tumas Kever, the Torah suspended that general halacha and it said that even when there's an Ohel of a Tefach, if it's in a kever, it doesn't block the Tumor so the body is still giving off Tumor So that's the exceptional halacha of tumas kever. So according to that formulation, it means that someone standing above the body directly is getting the Tumor from the body itself. Someone standing over the grave, not directly above the body, is getting Tumor from the Tomas Kever. So there are two Tumor emanating from this Kever. One is from the body itself and one is from the Kever, which is not directly above the body. So to summarize, it's clear that the Torah changed something about Tumor when it's in a Kever, because ordinarily an ohel of a tefach blocks Tumor tzutza, and that doesn't happen in the case of a Kever. So something changed, but it's not clear how much changed. One option is that the body no longer gives off Tumor tzutza. What the Torah created is a new Tumor tzutza, which comes from the Kever. And the other formulation is that the body continues to give off Tumor so anyone standing above the body is Tameh because of the body and the rest of the Kever on the sides of the body is also giving off a Tumar Says Rab Chaim that these two formulations are a debate between the Rambam and the Raivid. The Rambam very clearly holds like the first formulation that there is no more Tumar from the body. The only Tumar is from the grave. And this is based on a Rambam we saw earlier in Naziru's Perik Vav where the Rambam says that that a Nazir standing in a cemetery doesn't have to restart his Nazirus days because he doesn't restart the whole process because of the Tumma that comes from walking over a grave, walking into a cemetery. And the Rambam doesn't differentiate at all between whether he's standing on the side of the body or over the body. So it seems very clear that when he walks through the cemetery, he's certainly walking directly over the bodies as well. Now, if the Rambam holds the the bodies are continuing to give off tumoritsutza themselves. So why shouldn't the Nazir have to restart his vow? It's as if he came into direct contact of Tuma with the dead body because he stood directly over the dead body and he got the Tuma Rutsutsa of that body. So of course he would have to restart his vow. So the fact that the Rambam considers this all Tumas Kever and the Nazir doesn't have to restart his vow indicates that according to the Rambam, there is no Tuma from the bodies. The only Tuma is coming from the Kever at this point so that's why the nazir doesn't have to restart his vow so this understanding is why the rambam makes such a blanket distinction between a nazir that comes in contact with the dead body versus coming in contact with a kever because there is no more direct tumah from the dead body once it's in Tumma's kever the tumah of the body is gone and it's just tumah of the grave so Rab Chaim suggests that the raivet disagrees with this point of the Rambam and he holds the other formulation. That if there's Tumor ritsutsa in this case, it has to come from the body itself. So the rivet doesn't like the idea that the Torah legislated that there's still Tumor even though there's an ohel of a tefach, but that Tumor doesn't come from the body anymore. It comes instead from the Tumas Kever. The rivet holds that if the the Torah is creating Tumar in this case, so then it should come from each object the way it normally does. So if someone's standing over the body, there should be Tumar from the body itself, even through the covering of the Kever. And if they're standing on the Kever, but not on the body, so that's when the Tumar comes from the Kever. So the raivet believes in the second formulation that there is a distinction between someone standing over the body or over the kever, but not over the body because there is tumor from the body. And Rab Chaim even suggests that the Rivid would disagree with the Rambam in the case of the Nazir, that if he stands directly over the body in the grave, so then he would need to restart counting his vow. So this is another element that the Rambam and the Rivad debate with regards to Tomas kever, there according to the Rambam the body itself no longer gives off tumaritzutza only the kever has tumaritzutza whereas according to the Ravid if someone is standing above the body itself there is tumaritzutza from the body so now Rab chaim resolves the original contradiction between the two comments of the Ravid that he began with the question is how could the kohen skip over the casket because there's a tefach of airspace. So the rivid gives two different solutions. In chapter seven, he answered, because there's a full tefach of airspace over and above the body, so therefore there's no tomas kever, and that's why the Kohain skipping over it doesn't have tomas ohel. So this was the basis for the whole ruling of the rivid: that when there's a full tefach of airspace or more over and above the body, there is no tomas ohel of tomas Kever. But then in chapter 12, the Ravid gives a different solution, which is there's a leniency for a nazir that comes in contact with the covering of the grave. So he applies the same leniency to the case of the kohen. So if there's less than a tefach, then there's tumar which would be a problem. But more than a tefach, the problem is the covering of the grave, and that doesn't make a Kohain tame. So the problem is, how can the Ravid suggest both of these answers because if there's a special leniency for a Kohen, then that should undermine his whole idea that if there's a tefach of airspace above the body or more, then there's no more Tomas Keber. How do we derive that from the Gemara if there's a different way to explain the leniency in that Gemara? So now, says Rabbi Chaim very brilliantly tying together the different strands of his analysis throughout this piece, that according to the Rivid, there's a very clear proof from that Gemara and Bruchos that they would skip over the caskets... ...to his basic halacha that there is no Tumas Kever... ...when there's more than a tefach of airspace. Because according to the Rivid, ...if the problem in the casket case was Tumas Ohel... ...so then it wouldn't help to say that there's a leniency of Nazir and Kohain, ...because that Tuma comes directly from the dead body itself. It's Tuma Ritzutza of the body. So of course a Kohain and a Nazir can't be on top of it. So it's not going to help us to answer... That that there's some leniencies that relate to Kohen if the Tuma over there is Tumas Ohel. So that's why the Raivid has to say that there is no Tumas Ohel at all in that case, because more than a Tefach blocks the Tumas Ohel, even if it's Tumas Kever. So the Raivid now has a very solid proof to his idea that there is no Tumas Ohel of a Kever when there's more than a Tefach of airspace. The Rambam could have suggested that in that case there was a special leniency of a Kohen, because again, according to the Rambam, there is no Tuma from the body itself. It comes from the kever overall. But the rivet doesn't have that option. So the only thing he could say is that there's no tomas ohel in that case because of the tefach airspace, which blocks the tumor of the body, even in the case of the kever. So now the rivet has a solid proof for this basic idea he has that when there's a tefach of clear airspace over and above the body or more, there is no tumas Ohel, even in the case of a kever. But even the rivet agrees that there's still tumas Maga in that case. So now the rivet is bothered by a secondary question, which is when they skipped over the caskets, didn't they also touch the casket? So that would have been tumas Maga. So for that derived, it answers that there was another leniency, that the golel and the dofake, the covering of the grave doesn't make the Nazir Tamei, so too it doesn't make the Kohain Tamei. So that's why the Raided had to add in a second solution in order to explain why there's no problem of Tumas Maga in the case of the casket. So there he invokes that there's a special leniency for a Nazir and a Kohain, But that's not going to undermine his overall approach that there can't be Tumas Ohel because there's more than a tefach of airspace. Because if there would be a problem of Tumas Ohel, so then the the answer that there's a leniency for a Kohen is not going to resolve that problem. So according to Rab Chaim, there is no contradiction between these two answers of the One is dealing with Tomas Ohel, one is dealing with Tomas Maga, and the answer for Tomas Maga doesn't undermine the answer for Tomas Ohel because we still need to explain why there's no Tomas Ohel, and the answer for Tomas Maga that there's a leniency for a Kohen is not going to answer that. So the still has a Proof To his overall idea that when there's an airspace of a tefach over and above the body, there's no Tomas Ohel, even for Tomas Kever. So this is Rab Chaim's sprawling analysis in this piece to explain the differing approaches of the Ravid and the Rambam and to account for a number of details throughout the Ravid's various comments disagreeing with the Rambam with regards to Tomas Kever. The key conceptual points that Rab Chaim discussing are first of all, there's a debate between the Rambam and the Ravid when Tomas Kever applies. According to the Rambam, it only applies when there's a full tefach or more of airspace over and above the body. Whereas according to the Ravid, it only applies when there's an exact tefach of airspace, including the body. So Rab Chaim explains explains that this is based on whether tumah Ritzutza, which comes directly from the body and goes up and down, is in conflict with the tefach of airspace that's needed to create the status of an ohel to create the kever. According to the Rambam, they are in conflict because they're two different forms of tumah. One is Tumas Kever, one is tumah So one of them only can come from the body, not both. So that's why first we need to apply Tumas Kever. That only happens when there is a Tefach of airspace. And then only after that does the Tumar kick in to make it that the tuma goes through the Ohel, which is now blocking and would ordinarily prevent the tuma from reaching the person. So that's how the Rambam makes sense of this whole thing. And that's why he requires a Tefach of airspace in addition to whatever space the body is taking up. The Raiviram on the other hand, holds that since the ohel for Tumas Kever is not one that transports the Tumah all over, and it's also not one that blocks the Tumah from going up, so it's not in conflict at all with Tumar Ritsutsa, the way regular ohel is. So the Tumar Ritsutsa can be part of the Tumas Kever, and in fact it's needed as part of the tefach airspace of the Kever. So that's why the Raivit argues that Tumas Kever only applies when there's a tefach of airspace, Including the body with its tumah So this is Rab Chaim's overall approach to explain the different views of the Rambam and the Raivid and how they make sense of the concept of tumas kever. In addition, Rab Chaim has another major conceptual point, which is: What does it mean tumas kever? Does it mean that once there's a dead body there, it now creates this as a kever, and then the tumah comes solely from the tumas kever, or is tumas kever a combination? of the body permeating through the kever And Rab Chaim proves from a few places in the Rambam that Tumas Kever comes from the dead body. It's not a separate form of Tumah, but it's based on the fact that there is a dead body in this Kever. And finally, there's a third major conceptual point, which is Rab Chaim clarifies the Tumah Ritzutza of Tumas Kever, which according to the Gemara is the basis for Tumas Kever. Is that the regular old form of Tumah Ritzutza, that the body's Tumah goes up and down and in this case, it doesn't get blocked by the Ohel on top of it. Or is it a new concept that the body's Tumar is over and it gets transformed instead to Tumar of the kever? And Rab Chaim suggests that that's a debate between the Rambam and the Ravid.